right. Uh, welcome, everybody, back to this week's edition of Down and Dirty. That was James Brown, the legendary voice of J.B. James Brown. I'm Mario Nunez. That's alongside my bar- broadcast partner. Good morning, Mario. John Dingfelder. Glad to be here. J.D. is, as I'm going to refer to him going forward, because that's, <laughs> that's short, sweet, and to the point. Tell me what was so important about picking that music today. Well, um, Definitely uh, see the importance when we introduce our guests in a couple of minutes. There you go. Uh, these gentlemen are black and proud, and James Brown said it loud. And uh, we're so thrilled to be discussing Juneteenth um, and uh, as it relates to Tampa and the Tampa Bay area. And, and Central Avenue and Etal, because, you know, we, we have a, a proud history here that sometimes doesn't get the love that it deserves. We talk a lot about Ybor City, and rightfully so. Because maybe that could be arguably where it all kind of began, right? The economic engine that drove all of this. Well, I think these guys might have some comments on that, too. And we uh, hope that they're going to get down and dirty (laughs) with us and and, and school us if we need to be schooled. And, and of course, we do. That's what we do here. And if this is your first time tuning into to our our shows, our third show, we're down and dirty. And the reason we're down and dirty is is we're trying to give you a little bit of the the behind-the-scenes stuff, stuff you're not hearing elsewhere. So we'll give you the inside scoop, the down and dirty, the low down. That's right. We don't mind. We don't mind digging a little deeper. So who do we have helping us today, Mario? In, in studio on yeah. the board. Yeah. Oh, your friend and our friend, John Dunn. John Dunn uh, actually uh, uh, has a, a notorious history. Uh, John mm-hmm. Dunn worked for the Freeman administration as the PIO. Before that, he was a well-noted reporter, and after that, he went to TGH and helped the community over there as the PIO for many years. We also have. Lynn Marvin Dingfelder answering the phones, and the phone number is 813-239-9663. We will be taking some calls later in the show. This should be one of those kind of uh, uh, hours where the, the pace quickens as we get into the conversation, and we want to include you because this is all about inclusion, right, John? We talk about that each and every week when we come on the show. And let's start at the top by saying thank you very much to those that uh, were participating last week in our fundraising effort, right? Because how important is that? We met our goal last week. We did. New we're, kids on the block, right? New kids on the block. And we we, we are able to come up with our, our, uh, our, our goal. Our, we made our goal. And we appreciate those folks who called in. And, and listen, you can keep sending a little bit of money. A little bit of love. We like to refer to it as love. Yeah, love what, and money. What they, how do they do that on the air? Money and love. Just when you go to the website, WMNF.org, you'll see right there at the top of the landing page, there's a tip jar. If you click on that tip jar, it gives you the opportunity to drop all any, right, we got a, we got another song coming on to lead into these two fantastic guests. Maybe what I say, Ray Charles, and we picked that because Ray Charles was here in Tampa probably several times, and we're going to talk about that in a few minutes. Let's introduce our guest today. Joining us in studio, Mr. Fred Hearns, Tampa Bay History Center, well known to everybody in the community and certainly to to the Tampa Native Show fans, right? Fred, well, you've been with me on the show, yeah? Oh, yes, yes, yes. We're familiar with each other and always happy to talk about Tampa history and especially Tampa Black history. Thank you. Thank you. And, Fred, and for like us, Fred has that New York connection. I think he was born in, in New York City, but as a young child came to Tampa, went all the way through uh, Tampa public schools 
and and knows the history of the city and especially the black history of the city. Middleton in, Tigers in the house. Inside Middleton High School, absolutely. There we go. Where's my bell? All right, and our, and our other guest, another illustrious uh, tempeño, as Mario would say, James Ransom. Welcome, James. Hello, John. How you doing? I got a feeling you were born here. I was born here at McDill Air Force Base. My dad was in the Army Air Corps, so I'm a Tampa native. Yeah. Uh, James uh, has Does worked. Does that make four of us? <laughs> there you go. Huh? Ring the bell. Does, I don't have it, and apparently our sound effects guy's asleep at the switch. But anyway. Anyway, uh, uh, James uh, has done numerous things in the community uh, uh, across the board, uh, but I know him through TOBA, Tampa Organization of Black Affairs. Uh, TOBA has been, I think, started in 1979, has been a major player in, in, uh, in the community, pushing for change, pushing for change. You don't always hear him. You don't see him out there protesting in the streets, but I can guarantee you he is on the phone talking to the powers to be and making change Getting happen. Getting down and dirty behind the scenes. James, Can we say well, that? James, welcome to the show. Thank you, John. Yeah, and also I understand you have a history with WMNF. Tell me about that real quick. Yeah, so uh, years ago, Rob, Laura, and some other folks called me about uh, hosting a show on the radio. I didn't have time to do it, but I did it for a friend of mine, Otis Anthony. So I named the show The Sunday Forum, came on with him to co-host that program for a while to get him, get him rolling. And uh, then he took off and, uh, and had that show on there for a number of years. So I'm glad, glad to be a part of that. Yeah. Decades. Mm -hmm. we, we all listen to Otis. We miss Otis. Did a great job. And now Walter has. Walter's doing it now. Walter yeah. has that show. And he's filled those shoes admirably. Yes, did we yeah. say that? Yeah, he did. Yeah. Yeah. Otis actually called him, selected him. And, you know, that was his replacement. Uh, Otis has since passed on. I miss him dearly. He was a great friend, a historian also. Uh, like Fred. Uh, well, I, I can't compare him to Fred, but. Uh, he was still a historian, and I loved him like a brother. Yeah. Yep. So, Mario, uh, uh, like last week, uh, we got two great guests here. We're going to do a, uh, a, a format, a sort of a lightning round with questions. That's, Start us off. That's become our kind of our, our go-to yeah. move, right? I mean, in using basketball terms, you know, if you got no left hand, just keep going to your mm -hmm. right. So, mm -hmm. you know, that's what we're going to do here. So let's talk a little bit about Juneteenth, as, as J.D. alluded at the top of the show, uh, what it represents, why it's important to us. What does it mean for those people? And I can't imagine at this point in time that people don't really know. But let's let's take it all the way back to explaining the significance of Juneteenth. Well, for the last two years, Juneteenth has been a federal holiday, thanks to Congress and President Joe Biden. And so we see celebrations all over the country. Now, for many years, they've been celebrating Juneteenth, starting in Texas and then moving outward, uh, primarily through the South. But... My goodness, there must be at least a dozen or more Juneteenth celebrations just here in the Tampa Bay area this weekend. Juneteenth represents June 19th, 1865, the date that uh, Major General Gordon Granger read the Emancipation Proclamation to those 250,000 people who were still enslaved in the state of Texas. Two and a half years after the Emancipation Proclamation was supposed to have gone into effect January 1st, 1863. But we know that liberty came when the Union Army came. That's what was missing. So while we had the proclamation since the first day of January 1863, the Civil War was still going on and uh, it continued in many, many locations until the Union Army and in the case of Tampa, by the way, the Union Army and the Union Navy, which appeared in Tampa a year before Juneteenth. May 6, 1864, 
And even in the state of Florida, when the the army uh, arrived in Tallahassee and officially proclaimed that all enslaved persons in the state of Florida were free, that was May 20th, 1865. So different dates, but all adding up to liberation for black people. And Fred, what what did the enslaved people do when, when they heard that news, especially as related to Tampa and the Bay Area? Well, of course, there was celebration, but one of the first things that many of these people did was to leave wherever they were, plantation or wherever, and look for family members who had been sold away, uh, who had been traded away, who in many cases they had no idea where they were, but maybe they heard a rumor that they were on this plantation or that plantation. They went to unify their families, and that was really the beginning of what we know now as family reunions. That's when they started. Wow. And they were primarily started by the liberated black people who went to look for their family members and reunify with them. Now, a lot of folks who don't know Florida history very well, or maybe they're new to Florida, don't think of Florida as having plantations. You know, the, they think of Georgia or, or you know, the Carolinas or Alabama, Texas, having plantations and cotton, because we're really not a cotton place. But Florida, we had sugar plantations, right? Absolutely. Down in Bradenton, we had the Gamble Plantation, which is probably the largest one in this general area where blacks were uh, working, uh, harvesting sugar cane. And so they have a, a tour that they do down there. They give you some of that history. But, you know, primarily these large plantations were where cotton was grown, where rice was cultivated, and, of course, tobacco. So North Florida did have several plantations. The further south you went in the state of Florida, you didn't see that many. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, um, but I, I think I've read that there were house slaves um, mm-hmm. in, in, right here in, in the city of Tampa, correct? Absolutely. Well, you know, we're pretty much known as the Sunshine State, but also the state where a lot of citrus is grown. So uh, people worked uh, in orange groves and grapefruit groves. By the way, grapefruit was introduced to the state of Florida by a man from Haiti. And uh, we know that uh, there were also other jobs that blacks were uh, doing, working in the turpentine camps. In fact, my family came from that uh, uh, area in North Florida, where you, you, know, you had the pine trees. and that. We actually have some of those tools on exhibit at the Tampa Bay History Center. So it was manual labor, and also because early on in the 1800s, we began developing ports, in the state of Florida, Port of Tampa, which is now the largest port in the state, uh, when we look at the tonnage coming in and out. And so that also brought many folk down to Tampa Bay to work on the port here in Tampa. So there was a lot of work. Primarily all of it was was hard work, was manual labor. But black folk did what they could do to raise their families. It was about survival. Can we say that? It yes. was about survival. Yes. <clears throat> and working on the railroad. Bringing the railroad here, which was which was a a, a quality uh, economic opportunity, and it and it continued even through this century because we know that the the railroad as it existed was always staffed by black porters, right? Always, always staffed. So that was something that you could aspire to become. It was a good job, in other words, what we're trying to express to people right now. But there weren't that many opportunities, Fred. Black men also laid the rails and brought the railroad here. We do have a few photographs of them doing that work. Uh, Blazing the trails yes. through the state of Florida. I've seen those photographs where they just hack their way through those palmet- dense palmetto scrubs, and then they got to build it up to be a little bit higher mm-hmm. than the, the surrounding terrain. 
and then putting down the, the, the wood and the rails. That's a, a huge job, a hard job. And you're right. The black men did it. With pickaxes and shovels. Exactly. And mules and horses. Exactly. And the railroad came from east to west. So it actually passed through Polk County before it got to Tampa. We know that there was a strike. This is something a lot of people don't know. A lot of those black men walked off the job because of the treatment that they were receiving, the harsh treatment and low wages. And I bet that was a risky, absolutely. A risky business to walk off the yes. job at that point in time. And they were forced to go back to work to continue to work on the railroad and bring it into Tampa. Sure. So that's another part of our history we don't know a lot about. We do have a Pullman Porter blanket that the History Center owns, and right now it's on display at the Bob Saunders Library. Uh, that was the Pullman Porters. That's what created helped to create the black middle class along with the port. So just a lot of history, man, that uh, we love to tell these stories and give people a window into the past so they can help look into the future. Absolutely. And to to bring the kids into the conversation, too, because a lot of times they don't have any real foundation or understanding, you know, from whence they came, right? In this area especially. Absolutely. And the Tampa Bay history does an amazing job of making sure that we don't forget, right? Absolutely. And James and I grew up in an era doing segregation where it's like really living in two places, black Tampa and white Tampa, you know, Uh, and those neighborhoods that were primarily where black people lived, there were about eight of them. Uh, Say if you go back 100 years ago and we're coming up on the 100th anniversary of the 1927 rapery report, which uh, Dr. Benjamin Mays played a major role in writing. For many years, he was president of Morehouse College in Atlanta. And uh, I just love looking back at 100 years and how our people persevered in spite of Jim Crow, in spite of the limited opportunities that we had. We came through that, and we're stronger because of it. So let's talk about about that, uh, James. Let's talk about that Jim Crow era. Um, And also, uh, Fred, you mentioned some of the parts of Tampa that they that uh, black folks settled in, including the scrub. Uh, uh, the Love scrub. to hear some of those names of some of those places the, that people listening might be wondering, what were they called? Yeah, the scrub, sort of, the scrub sort of got paved over by the interstate uh, on a lot of that in Central Avenue. But fill us in on that, James. So I'm going to leave that to Fred to talk about <laughs> it. Fred, go ahead and tell him about that because I, I, have, I, have, I can talk about Central Park, Central Avenue, where I spent my youth and uh, Main Street and other things like that and some of my family history around that and things going on. But I think Fred could really get into the scrub. Uh, Fred, hit us on the scrub and then we're going to jump to Central Avenue for sure. Okay, real quick. A hundred years ago in the 1920s, there were approximately 20,000 black folk living in the city of Tampa. 8,000 of them lived in the Central Avenue corridor. And that's what we know as the scrub. We also had black folk living in, uh, at that time, what was called College Hill, which today we call East Tampa, but College Hill, Belmont Heights, Jackson Heights, that's what we now call East Tampa. We also had a large number of black folk living in West Tampa. Uh, Some were living in Port Tampa. Also a small area known as Dobieville, which is around Kennedy Boulevard uh, in Willow in that area, uh, named for Richard Doby. Right next uh, to Hyde Park Village. Right, yeah. exactly. Yeah. And on the north side. Uh, Seminole Heights, uh, South Seminole Heights, rather, uh, not North Seminole Heights, mm-hmm. but Tampa Heights, Tampa Heights, where we have the Zion Cemetery, uh, and then Sulphur Springs, a little small area of black folk living in Sulphur Springs. So that's pretty much what the city looked like. And then, of course, we had 
uh, areas uh, further out uh, in the county, in the unincorporated part of the county. So that's pretty much what the neighborhoods look like in Tampa, where black folk were living 100 years ago. And there was a small group of black folk living in Robert City, named for J.W. Roberts, who was one of the cigar manufacturers. And, you know, we were the cigar city for many years. So that's pretty much where black people lived in that, Tampa. Robert City, is that, is that the one over by UT? Uh, Robert City. On the other side of the river. North Boulevard. Robert City is where Phillips Field was once located. We now have the North Boulevard, Julian B. Lane, Riverfront Park, that beautiful park. That, that was in the middle of Robert City. Got it. And I guess... Um, Presumptuous to me to say, but St. Pete must have had a similar uh, black community, I guess, right? South St. Pete, they absolutely did. Uh, primarily South St. Pete. And by the way, you know, St. Petersburg, Pinellas County, was actually part of Hillsborough County right. until 1915. So uh, a lot of the things that, that happened there were kind of a mirror of what happened in Tampa. And that segregated community was pretty much south of Central Avenue. And it pretty much still is. I mean, things have not changed in many respects in 100 years. Well, let's talk about Central Avenue because uh, that's a that's just a beautiful part of, I think, of our city's history. And some of it, uh, sadly, was lost. James? Yeah, I mean, I think, uh, you know, Central Avenue was the subject of, uh, of, a, of a tragic moment in history where a shooting occurred. Uh, a black man was shot in the back climbing a fence, and that created a riot situation. And folks... You know, ultimately, uh, you know, uh, there was arson in that neighborhood and all the businesses that were there were, you know, were, were now burned and, and Central Avenue doesn't exist anymore. But but when it was thriving, 22nd Street or Main Street or Central Avenue, there were black people that owned property and buildings and businesses of all kinds and types. You know, there were pharmacies, dry cleaners, movie theaters. There was hotels. I and, love hearing and Arthenia talk about Central Avenue because what her daddy her daddy owned uh, one of those clubs along there. Cotton Club. Cotton yeah. Club, yeah. yeah. But, I mean, you know, more than that, I mean, or we're talking about, prof- we're also talking about doctors and dentists and lawyers. You know, uh, my grandfather walked here from uh, t- from Thompson, uh, from, from Georgia, along the railroad tracks. That's the only safe place he could walk. And came to Tampa and Bradenton with 90 cents in his hands. Uh, but he accumulated with his friends a lot of uh, property and businesses, including the Rogers Hotel uh, with with the Central Life Insurance Company investments and property uh, in in on the uh, Atlantic Ocean and New Smyrna Beach area, uh, Bethune Volusia Beach, and in Jekyll Island he had a motel because the black people wanted to have the same experience as anyone else. So there were people that wanted to be in hotels and motels and so forth. They had Bonnet Lake Lodge in uh, in the community as well, and Jim Hammond and his. His dad and mom worked for that uh, hotel property over there. So there were a lot of people in, on Main Street, doctors, dentists, and also the beautiful thing about Main Street is that it was a collection of Hispanic people, Italian people, white people, black people, all up and down Main Street. It was a great, you know, reflection of our community. Uh, Central uh, 22nd, Lee Davis owned a business district over there. And, uh, thriving businesses, thriving, thriving black businesses, thriving black businesses, a black middle class. Very, yeah. and, and, and what happened? What what happened? Uh, was it Jim Crow? Was well, it civil you know, rights? I, I would uh, say, I would say uh, from from what we could see that when you are denied access to freedom of movement, you know, sometimes that gets disconnected from continuing to service where you came from. So the flight out of the black community was going to harm the community, and I think in that case, you know, people left that those areas to go to places that they were denied going in the past. 
and then come back to you know service those business opportunities that were that were still left behind. So before we yeah. go to the demise, I I, I did want to mention the music scene and the Jackson House, Fred. Well, this is uh, Black Music Month, the month of June, and boy, do we have some stories that we can tell when we get the opportunity. Uh, I know you you earlier played, I think, a record, a part of a record from Ray Charles, who actually lived in Tampa off and on for about two years, <laughs> made his first recording at 813 uh, Short Emory Street in the Scrub neighborhood. Uh, Ray Charles had his first child <laughs> here in Tampa, wow. Evelyn Robinson, who went to Middleton High School. Wow. There were, There's a lot about Ray Charles. He left his footprint here. And then, of course, he went to the Seattle area and, and lived on the West Coast and became an international superstar. But we also had, I know for the younger people, at least younger than me, uh, they per- probably heard of Shock G. Shock G was a rapper who actually gave Tupac Shakur his first real break. Shock G went to Chamberlain High School. Spent a lot of his uh, early years here in Tampa. He's actually buried here in Tampa. He died here. Uh, and then we can go to a group that many people may not have heard of, Faith, Hope, and Charity. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Three graduates of Howard W. Blake High School had three number one records in 1975. The largest one that most people have heard, primarily an instrumental, but you can hear their names in the back saying, Do the Hustle. Yeah. The Hustle record, primarily a musical, uh, instrumental if we're not oh. careful, Mario and I will hey, sing it. Hey, yeah, go we'll, ahead. <laughs> Everybody's heard that record. Whether you're in an elevator or wherever. Everybody has moved to that record. Three, and that record has moved. Yeah, moved to that song. <laughs> That's it. Three so beautiful they, from they Blake. Call, they yeah. called it the Chitlin, the Chitlin Circuit. Yes. We, won't, we won't get into that, but some of the other big names. And where did they stay? They couldn't stay in uh, a white hotel. If yep. they didn't have family or friends here, many of them stayed at the Jackson House, which of course and they now stayed at my, my, our family house as well. My yeah. dad, my my grandfather had a house. I sent I just sent you an email with pictures of our home on Twenty First Avenue and Twenty Fifth Street. Wow! And the one in Bradenton. So Hank Aaron and uh, and Joe Lewis and uh, Count Basie and people like that stayed at not only our house but they stayed at Jackson House. But they came to our house as well. I didn't know where they were when I was a kid, but <laughs> they 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 did come through Tampa and Bradenton. You know. And then they stayed at the Jackson House. Uh, we don't have time to get into that whole Jackson House story, but it was in, been in the paper a couple times recently because folks are trying to save the Jackson House, which is so important, so important to the community. Absolutely. And we know that uh, the history of the Jackson House goes back more than 100 years ago. Uh, just hundreds of stories probably you could tell. The one that I got from Sarah Jackson Robinson, who lived there over 80 years, of her life, she can remember seeing Ella Fitzgerald, she said, sitting at her kitchen table, writing out the words of the song that became a tisket or tasket. Wow. Now that's from Sarah Jackson Robinson. So she witnessed that. So And who and Duke Ellington I heard I heard uh, as well. Well Duke Ellington would have come through Cab Calloway, uh, a name that many people may not be real familiar with, Chick Webb. That's how Ella got her first break, singing right. with the Chick Webb band tremendous drummer so and then a lot of people probably just came to visit they may not have stayed there but they had two pianos in the house so there was always music and it's but it's more than just that the people who owned the jackson house were uh created business owners who created businesses like uh at that time the only black cab stand in tampa was owned by people from that family they also took in laundry from the courthouse john 
<laughs> uh, you can appreciate this being an attorney for go. the judges and the attorneys who they would bring their dirty laundry there and someone from the Jackson family would pick it up because they lived only a block away from the courthouse yeah. and they would do the laundry. So all kinds of businesses they started because these people were self-reliant. They depended on, uh, depended on themselves for their livelihood. And so the Jackson house, yeah, big story in Tampa. All right, so uh, Mario. If you're listening to us, if you're just joining us now, this is Down and Dirty with Mario Nunez and John Dingfelder, WMNF Community Radio 88.5. And if you'd like to join the conversation, we encourage that. Please call us at 813-239-9663. You can email us at dj at wmnf.org, or you can text us at 813-433-0885. I have a question for Fred. Well, I think John's got a little <clears throat> song for us. Come so on, John. On the back side, I'll ask mm -hmm. that question. A boy's born in Hawkeye, Mississippi Surrounded by a world that ain't so pretty His parents give him love and affection To keep him strong, moving in the right direction Living just enough, just enough for the city Go on, Stevie. We hear you. Just enough for the city. The question I was going to ask you as you were referencing 1927, just a few minutes ago, Fred, has to do with 1922 and, and the abomination that took place in Tulsa, Oklahoma. But mm. that that resonated throughout the country, certainly. But we, it seems to me like some of that was percolating right here in Tampa and in the Bay Area when you include St. Petersburg with the black community that, you know, you mentioned about the necessity that we all had, you know, look after each other, black businesses for black folks and so on and so forth. I think that, can you speak to that a little bit? How much did that influence us here in Florida? Even though Tulsa was far enough away, the news had to travel. A lot of the violence that was directed toward black people, especially when they were successful and they had a business district like Black Wall Street in Tulsa, Oklahoma, uh, was centered around uh, people who did not want to see these black folk prosper. Uh, there was some envy, there was some jealousy, and then the competition. They, they wanted to eliminate the competition because if black folk have their own businesses to support, they're not going to come support the white-owned businesses. So what happened there was a, com a complete neighborhood was wiped out. Uh, many people were killed. Folk who survived left the area, never returned. There were only a few people who survived, and I think there are still a, a few of those people still living. But what happened in Tampa was in 1967, we mentioned it earlier, when uh, Martin Chambers was shot and killed and we had serious civil disturbances here in Tampa. Unfortunately, there were primarily young black folk who burned down four of the bu buildings on Central Avenue, which contained several of the businesses. That was sort of the beginning of the end for Central Avenue because along with the destruction of those buildings, this was all in the late 60s, around the same time. We had the interstate coming through, wiping out the homes of a lot of the patrons who supported those businesses, as well as some of the businesses on uh, the northern end of Central Avenue. And we also had desegregation. So as James mentioned earlier, when you have been told all your life that you're not good enough to come to these white establishments and sit down and order a meal like everybody else, and when you're kept away because of Jim Crow, once that veil has been lifted and you can go anywhere you want, wherever your money will take you, we forgot our black businesses on Central Avenue. And many of them had to close because uh, they didn't have the support. So that was a little bit different from what happened 
uh, in Tulsa, but the effect, the impact was sort of the same. Yeah. And keep in mind the, uh, the the interstate moving in West Tampa also was very negatively impacting that community. It Ybor just City. knocked out a lot. Ybor City, the cleaved same thing. It, it cleaved it in, in yeah. half, north and south, yeah. Jamie. And, I mean, you know, you're talking about uh, the, the economic justice issues around development. Uh, that's what was supposed to be protecting communities away from those types of uh, damaging uh, circumstances, but it didn't happen. So, yeah, that struggle started back at that time. Yeah. And we have a history. It's, it's, a, it's a nasty history in the U.S. of always picking those neighborhoods, the black and brown neighborhoods, where we're going to put our new highways through, our new shiny highways and whatever we're going to do. But I think, and Fred, correct me if I'm wrong, there is a little bit of a renaissance. I like to say it that way. It's renaissance. But where, where some of these... Is that your French version? That's the French version. <laughs> I don't have my beret on today, but that's the French version where, where some of these communities are starting now to reestablish and reassert themselves, especially the activism there around the TROP in St. Petersburg where they want to bring the gas works, that, that whole area back that was once a thriving black community. I think we're starting to kind of see it pull back a little bit. And in right, Tulsa Fred, as well. Fred, I got to interrupt because speaking of assertion oh. and asserting ourselves, okay. we, got, we have two special guests in our, in our studio today, Fred Hearns and James Ransom. We have a very special guest calling in on the phone. And let me see if I can bring him up. Are you there? Caller. Excuse me. Caller, we see you there. We're trying to get to you. And we're going to okay, get to caller, you right are here. Are you quick. there? I'm here. There All right. <laughs> and I recognize that voice. Who is that? Man, down and dirty. Who's, was that you, John, or Mario? It's <laughs> a combination. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we don't know who's down and we don't know who's dirty, but we, we'll go ahead and, and claim it all. All right. We have Tampa, former Tampa City Councilman and my good friend, our good friend, Thank Ar you. Orlando Goods. Uh, calling in, and Orlando, how are you, my friend? I'm great. I'm relaxed, uh, stress-free, and I'm just uh, glad that, uh, hey, I can still move, walk, and talk, and just feel good to get up every day. Absolutely. I, 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 I'm, I'm with you 100%. A on, comment on or question for our esteemed guest this, this morning, Orlando? Anything Orla you'd like well, to? Well, you know, one thing, I, one, one thing I'm so glad Orlando <laughs> called in. Because I think it was about a year ago or two years ago, Orlando, you started when when President Biden made this a national holiday, you started uh, raising a ruckus like you did at city council so effectively to make this a city holiday. Am I correct, Orlando? Councilman? You're right. People don't like a ruckus sometimes in the city of Tampa, but you know, we have to do what we have to do to get things moving. So we, we were able to make a ruckus, and I was able to get a ruckus loud enough to make uh Juneteenth, a city holiday for the citizens and for our employees, city of Tampa. Yeah, James, you got something to add on that? Well, I mean, Orlando uh, always stood up. I think you know, you and John and others that that uh, stood up at times to make sure diversity, equity, and inclusion was a part of our DNA in the city. That's what we expect. I mean, we're in a country where the argument was about taxation with representation, so we want to see that in everything that we do. So, thank you. Uh, uh, Councilmember Goose for your leadership regarding the holiday, and thank you both and others that supported the uh, the effort to make sure that there was some intentionality around the value, especially in Tampa, where 24% of the population is black in the geographic area of Tampa, 25% Hispanic. With that in mind, this should be a natural way of life that we have diversity, equity, and inclusion, so appreciate the work that you all did in that regard. 
Suffice it to say, it was at one point. I think we were much more inclusive during those early, early, early years when the Afro-Cuban was here, the free black was here, and everybody was gathered around and, and rolling cigars and drinking cafe con leche and making their families and establishing themselves. It wasn't until that Jim Crow established and ensconced itself in the Deep South and got all the way here I mean, I, that wedges were I, drawn. I would say from my experience, a young boy living on both sides of town, when I came out of Dr. Wright's dentist office on Main Street, mm-hmm. I looked across the street. There was Anthony's driving. I went to the left and walked to the corner, and there was E.J. Salcini's mom and dad in a, in a five and dime over there. Mastretta Brothers had two stores across the street from each other on Main Street. A naturally it, diverse community. It was just organically. It was just up and down Main Street. You know, Chester White had a, a, you know, had a, a, a gasoline station. You know, I, I went to Leslie Bakery on the, another corner. It's just... It was just no big deal. It was everybody was just on the same in the same neighborhood. You know what I mean? So I can see where you know today is not exactly like that. Uh, but uh, you know we have to we have to persevere and move through for those of us who still believe in the value of what we all bring together from our various perspectives and vantage points and cultures and in in our art, music, food. Whatever that might be, Councilman, uh, uh, how, how do you feel yeah. about that? And are you optimistic about our future and the diversity of our community? I just believe that you have to have like-minded people to do like-minded things. If you're not on the same page, the page doesn't turn. I look at our elected officials. We have to be on the same page when we talk about diversity, inclusion, and equity. You know, uh, people talk about equality, but the, the bottom line, especially for for black and brown folks, is is equity. Making yeah. sure that the equity is the same. And I think, yeah. John, you know, we, that's what we fought for. A lot of people didn't like some of the things that we fought for, but we know those are the things that we're going to make the balance in this city. Uh, and uh, again, you know, it's very hard when you're a councilman when, you know, money tries to influence uh, areas and opportunity. And I guess uh, for me, that, that never... I never had that fear because I knew what my job was, what my task and what my assignment was to make sure to bring fairness to the citizens, the employees, and everyone in the city of Tampa. And I, I know I did that effectively. And folks didn't like that. They didn't like when you did it. But again, you know, we were blessed to make sure we did our job without fear. Well, you know what they say about the squeaky wheel and, and uh, Councilman Goods. Uh, I know our voices will continue, you know. We might be in a different position. We might sit in a different chair, but they can't stop our voices. And it's one of the reasons I decided to work with Mario here on this show, uh, down and dirty, and, and let our voices continue to be heard. Councilman, I'm gonna ha- we're going to have you on this show for an entire hour, and we're going to talk about all these things. I appreciate you calling in. Thank you for having me. All right. We love you, brother. Thank you. So that's how we do it here at Down and Dirty. We don't mind. Mm-hmm. You know, and sometimes you got you listen. Sometimes you got to color outside the lines. Sometimes you got to raise, as Councilman Goods said, a ruckus. Because if they're not listening, if they're not getting the message, then sometimes you got to just, you know, take the charge. And we, I know we do the NBA season just finished, and boy, can we talk a minute or two about that? Because I mean, I don't know what the, I, think, you I know, don't know what the answer is. Yeah, well, we well we have to focus our attention on is what, what do we have in common? You know, coming together for a meeting and talk about what we don't have in common is not not constructive. Don't spend any time with people who don't want to talk about what we have in common. 
in our mutual interest, and then we can move forward from there. Anything else needs to be sort of run It's just over. noise. It's just noise. Yeah, and so I think any whether that's an elected official or anyone else, we need to make sure that don't make a commitment to support anyone running for office who doesn't have a special doesn't have sensitivity for your special interest. And in Tampa, we have a community that should be valued and should be intentionally uh, in, included in every opportunity of of uh, the quality of life. And, uh, and those kind of things. So, well, James, you know, you know we, we, we talked a little bit earlier about the uh, civil rights movement. Right. We, were, we were talking about the riots in Tampa, which was, you know, clearly a sort of a step backwards for, for everybody. Um, but and then we had civil rights across the, the nation. Um, and then we'd sort of jump forward. I want to jump forward 40, 50 years to Black Lives Matter. And, I, and I'm curious of y'all's perspective on comparing the two. You know, the goals, I think the goals and the dreams of both movements were the same, but the approach was totally different. Hey, you know, I'm, I'm afraid it's going to probably jump in, but listen, you have a nation right now where there are millions of people who support folks who are contrary to the very constitution of the country that we live in today. These are not black people we're talking about. So you, you got a whole lot of folks out there doing things that are contrary to a lot of people who are, who are from every race. We might that, have a governor who's totally opposed to diversity, equity, and Well, inclusion. I mean, clearly in a state where, you know, we're paying taxes and you got a governor saying we're not going to support any publicly funded universities that have diversity, equity, and inclusion programs is rolling the clock back somewhere. And that's mm -hmm. affecting black people, Hispanic people, women, all kinds of groups of people in the protected classes of the federal law. Right, and so, that encouraging those other folks out there who've been sort of hiding and lurking in the weeds, right. and now they can come out and say ugly things and do ugly things. Right, and so I think for the rest of us, we have to just stay focused on what we have in common, what, what our mutual values are, and just keep moving in that direction and not get slowed down or stopped by that kind of a uh, diatribe. Yeah. Fred, uh, Black Lives Matter versus civil rights, you given much thought uh, to the comparing the two? Yes, I have, and as a matter of fact, as part of our travails and triumphs, permanent exhibit at the Tampa Bay History Center. We actually have uh, a tribute to those young people who carry those signs, and this is history, so we're just presenting what happened. We actually were able to collect some of the signs that the young people were carrying and put them on display wow. at the History Center. That's awesome. One of them says, racism is whack. <laughs> the other one says, defund the police. Mm. And it has a breakdown of the city budget from 2020, I believe it is. And we... <laughs> We, we collected that post. It's on display. I had a group of young folk from Sweden uh, who about a month ago uh, were visiting Tampa, and they wanted to talk to me about black history in this city and, and what did I think. And they had some questions they asked me, and they said, are you optimistic about the future of Tampa, Tampa Bay as far as the different ethnic groups working together? And I said, yes, I am optimistic. And a lot of my optimism is based in the diverse group of young people who I saw walking through the streets of Tampa three years ago. And at least twice a week, I walk over to uh, an area not too far from Tampa Bay History Center, Sparkman's Wharf, and I have lunch. And you know what I see as I'm sitting there at the table it looks like the United Nations passing in front of me. Wow. Black people, Hispanic people, white people, uh, people with, from Asian descent, uh, old, young. I see that on the Riverwalk like and crazy. You, yeah. and, you, and you see the diverse group of people that are walking together. And, and you know what I see? I just see people. Right, right. With all the division, with all of the issues, with all the problems we have, these people are together by choice. 
And a lot of folks choose to be with people from different ethnic backgrounds. So that gives me hope, John uh, and Mario, because the future is what we're going to make it. We're deciding right now what Tampa's going to look like 50 years from now, what have you. We've got to have equality of opportunities, though. That's what's missing. Well, That's let, what's missing. Economic opportunities, jump, for sure. Yeah, let me jump into uh, opportunity. And, Fred, I agree with you completely. I love it when I walk the river walk and see that natural diversity. And it is young people, and that's where our hope is, because I think most of them, what I can see, are pretty colorblind, which is wonderful. Right. But, James, um, the affirmative action, okay, it's under attack again. We thought we had it resolved 20, 30 years ago where colleges and universities could at least take uh, minority uh, colors, one skin and what have you, uh, into their consideration when they admitted folks into undergraduate or into graduate schools or med schools or law schools or what have you. Now, two big cases in the U.S. Supreme Court are pending. And with this U.S. Supreme Court, there's a lot of folks who predict a bad ending to that. Your thoughts? Oh, no, that's that's really something we have to fight against. So we've come too far. I mean, you know, I mentioned to you the other day that the Bible hasn't been amended with any new books, past revelations, but the Constitution has been amended many times to make it the country that we're in today. Part of that means women's suffrage is over. Uh, we have equal rights, equal justice, equal access, equal high, fair housing, all those kind of things. We can't be going rolling the clock back on on those things on that, that make us the country that we are, the country of immigrants, the country of people that didn't come of our own free will, but we're just the United States. So we have to make sure that we fight against anything, not ignoring anything about people being killed. You know, uh, the Black Lives Matter movement was serious and it's still happening. We don't want to be ignoring any of those things that are bad. But when the government is, is looking at turning things back on the, uh, on the recruitment and retention of diverse student populations, in the state of Florida is leading the way on things going backwards in the diversity, equity, inclusion space. But you got to go out and vote. You know, you have to actually vote the right people in office. You can't have a, a veto-proof legislation approving something from, from a governor who's going take, taking Florida backwards. A governor who wanted to vote against the, the visit, town, visit Florida and, and Enterprise Florida would mean that people around the beaches, around our peninsula state, in our attractions, at our hotels and shopping centers that affect the industry that cascades through a number of industries will be hurt and damaged for folks who don't want to come to Florida. They don't think Florida is going to be embracing them or accepting of them. So, yeah, we, we have a challenge, John, but the challenge that we can uh, address is to come together on things, again, that we agree on and vote people in office who represent the people's interests. Yeah, because at the end of the day, those people in office are the ones who put those judges in. That's correct. At the, at the U.S. Supreme Court level for the president, at the governor's level for the state Supreme Court and the other uh, significant judges in the state. And then those judges get to decide, quote, what is constitutional and what isn't. Exactly. And we know that they can be very active in their opinions. Very, very worried about this affordable, uh, excuse me, affirmative action issue. Um, the cases that are brought up relate to Harvard and Chapel Hill, but basically they pick those cases because one's a private school and one's a public college. But once those decisions come out, they're going to affect I, every... I, can, I can never understand reverse discrimination uh, <laughs> in cases where you got nearly 100% is going to the majority population of white people. It's like laws like Croson versus someone saying that it's against the law to use race as a factor in determining diversity, equity, and inclusion. That's ridiculous. You're getting 100% already. So you're trying to share something that you always got 100% of with people who didn't get anything. That's just a ridiculous law. John, uh, John, John Dunn's racking up one more song uh, that's going gonna, gonna to lead us into our next conversation. At 
Idea what's happening because, this is, <laughs> no because idea. this is radio, not television. What you missed <laughs> during that interlude was my beautiful, talented, brilliant, and beautiful, wonderful wife, Lynn Marvin Dingfelder, came in the studio to give me a hug and a kiss. And there's a special meaning behind that. We were at the Obama uh, inauguration, and we were standing 50 feet away from President and Michelle Obama when Beyonce sang that song, and the President and Michelle danced. But we danced too, and I just got a mm-hmm. hug and a kiss related to that special moment in our history. Nin- uh, 2008, I think. Stevie you know, Wonder was there too, remember? Stevie Wonder, everybody was there. Stevie? Very special moment. I, I wanted to bring that song in uh, to, to say, at last, uh, you know, we're, we're, we're not there. We've, it's like two steps forward and one back. Mario... You had a question and uh, no, it was it was more of a question, a comment than a question. But th- there's a question in there somewhere. W- you know, we're you, you mentioned several times today, James, about turning the clock back and why are we doing this? And w- so, if we zoom the lens out to that proverbial thirty thousand foot view, what is the motivation for all of this? I think it's a, it's kind of a rhetorical question. But either of you two would take a whack at this. Why are we going there again? What what is this all about? At its essence, is it about control? Is it about you know, losing control, if you will, is because I, as I like to say in my community, my household, I think the country is becoming more cafe que leche, which is to say more coffee, which is the the darker, right? The stronger coffee than the leche, which is to say the white. And that doesn't sit well with a lot of folks. But, you know, you can't have it both ways. You can't be oppressing people as as one does in, in the South, let's just say, and then cheer as loud as you can for the University of Alabama football team because that team is 85% African-American athletes. So I'm just wondering, what is at the core of all of this, in your opinion, Fred? Well, unfortunately, and this is just my opinion, I think some of what we've been seeing over the last few years is part of a backlash against what people perceive too much progress for black people in the election of President Barack Obama. Uh, we also know that uh, the, the young man who went into that church in South Carolina That's and awesome. killed nine innocent people, including the pastor, and I refuse to, to call his name. One of the things he said is that they asked, well, why'd you do this? By the way, you know, he was taken captive alive and taken to, I think, Burger King to get a hamburger or something before he was taken to jail. Uh, that's not the story of a lot of black people who are uh, arrested for much... Or shot in the back while uh, they're who, who haven't away. killed nine people. Mm. But anyway, he said, well, I want to start a race war. Some of you all may remember that he said that. And by golly, when I look at these things that are happening in this country, I'm saying, you know, some people took him seriously, and they're trying to do that. I don't think that's going to happen, but we're having all of these things that, you know, as, as John, I think you mentioned earlier, we thought we had already resolved this issue. It's been codified in law, and now we're going back and changing these things and going back to the 50s or even before then. So we've got to stay alert. We've got to stay on our toes. We have to rewind battles we thought we'd already won. 
We got to register more people. We got to get more people to vote for the right candidates. And so this is just something that uh, is uh, sort of a call to arms, if you will. And we have got to stay alert and watch everything that happens because we are heading in many cases in the wrong direction in this country. Those of us who want to move forward have to keep fighting. And our state is at the at the tip of the spear. Sorry, James. I tell you, you, you got to look at the American flag, the one that we fly over the country, not mm-hmm. any other flag. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> but when you look at what happened at the at, at the Capitol, I mean that that moment, January, 6th. I couldn't believe it. I, I didn't believe when I heard it. But everyone that was there, the majority of the people, 99.9% of the people didn't look like us, right? So the key is all Americans, true Americans, need to understand that what, what, what that day meant for our country. Everybody should understand that the current <clears throat> election, possibly featuring a president that, uh, I mean, a candidate, a nominee, who could be in prison and still be able to potentially run for office, you know, if you go to prison and you come out with a record, you can't, you can't vote. vote. You can't vote. But can you be president or run for president and have a record of being indicted by the federal government? That's ridiculous. So we, as a lot, of pe- a lot of people have to come together on the on who is the true American under the one flag that we have in this country, and we need to all stay focused together on that. We colorblind at war. When we go to war, everybody side by side. At war, color doesn't matter. Everybody pays the same. That's right. So we need to understand that this is some kind of war going on, and we need to stay on the same on the right side of this war. This is the most patriotic issue there is, because because the Constitution, as amended, speaks to to, speaks to freedom, speaks to equality, and and I'm proud to fly the flag um, as a patriot, and I believe in these issues that we're talking about. You know, bouncing off one thing you said, Fred. And I, and I want to be trite because you see it in the airport. See something, say something. So when we see these problems mounting up, don't just turn on your, your television or your computer or put on your headsets and pretend it's going to go away. You know, we've got to jump out there and, and, and say something and do something. And one way that we're doing that, if I can put in a shameless plug. Please do. For the Tampa Bay History Center, we have a new permanent exhibit uh, by the way, Monday, Juneteenth is a free day, and that's our theme, Juneteenth, a free day. And it literally is free. There's no admission charge. This coming Monday, June 19th from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. at the Tampa Bay History Center, 801 Water Street down in Channelside. Right next to the Ice Palace. Exactly. The exhibit is called Travails and Triumphs. And so we invite everybody to come on down and see this exhibit. And we have a lot of the things we've been talking about on this program uh, on exhibit there, things that all come from Tampa. They're all local artifacts, over 100 of them. And we tell these stories and many, many more. And they're great po- exhibit. And great they're, po- they're positive. They're, there's a lot of positivity there. And I don't, I don't want us to go out on the down note. As a matter of fact, the, the last song that we've chosen is The Change of Coming by Sam Cooke. And that's one you're going to hear mm-hmm. in a few minutes. But there, there is positive things. There's positive change happening. James, you were instrumental recently in pushing and pushing the mayor and the city to do the right thing over on the Hannah Avenue, the $100 million Hannah Avenue project. And what, what, it, what was your involvement there, and how'd you do it? So uh, let me just be clear. I'm, I'm, I represent Toba. I'm on the board, and I'm not representing myself. So when I speak about these things, I'm representing an organization. But, yeah, we had to get involved with that issue to try to make sure the city did not have a contract out, a social source contract 
technically of $108 million on that project. To the mayor's credit, after we went through the process, you know, they did turn around and it was really DPR that had to had to um, relinquish some of the work to make sure that black owned companies and by the way, 35 or 36 percent of that deal. And, and you you all were involved with that city council and Orlando Goose and everybody else to make sure they had a goal of 35 or 36 percent of EBO, uh, you know, of, of minority owned businesses in that in that package. What we did is made sure they not put... Not just EBO, what? BBE. And specifically, 20% of that was spent with black-owned companies in Tampa, Florida. And they're lying right around 22%. But that took a little bit of a, of a fight to make sure that that was done. What we're saying is that we should not have to do that. It should just be in the policies, procedures, and practices of our local government for, for diversity, equity, and inclusion to be a normal way of business. You have to institutionalize, institutionalize it if it's it. going to be sustainable. Yes, it's got to it's got to it's got to uh, go beyond who the mayor is and who the county commissioners are, and all that kind of thing. So and anyway, it says a lot about you. a community when when you're you're leading with inclusion. It right. says a lot about a community. You know, we we consider ourselves to be one of the biggest little cities in America, and that our hallmark has always been that we're welcoming and friendly. And the mayor likes to tout that from the highest mount. But it's got to be in the policy to really make it work. Right. And to the mayor's credit, and everybody did happen. So we made it work. Well, Congratulations. Gentlemen, uh, we, we've unfortunately run out of time. We could do a few more hours talk, talking about this. But we, we've, got, uh, we've got a little bit uh, uh, to things to wrap up. Uh, I'm sorry. There were a couple of calls that came in. We didn't get a chance to take them. But, but Fred Hearns, uh, great, great work through a lifetime. And, and now, I, you know, you're supposed to be at the beach retiring, and here you are <laughs> working harder than ever at the Tampa Bay History Center. James Ransom, you too are supposed to be retired, and you never stop. So we appreciate you coming down here Thank with you, us. John. Thank you, John. And at some, and some point, both you fellows will be joining me on the Tampa Native Show so we can continue this conversation. But as we as we talk about continuing the conversation, where are you going now, Fred? What are you going to do in about the next five minutes? I've got another radio show here at WBNF, so I'm only going a few feet away. He's only going to go in the next <laughs> studio, so if you haven't heard enough from Fred, be sure to stay tuned for the skinny coming up next. Shall I go ahead and go into our close? Well, and I just wanted to thank everybody listening to, uh, out there for thanks for being part of the conversation. Absolutely. On behalf of my broadcast partner, John Dingfelder, our engineer today, John Dunn, our phone screener, of course, and part-time producer, Lynn Marvin Dingfelder. I'm Mario Nunez wishing you salute and happy days. We'll be on the lookout for you next week. Stay tuned now for The Skinny with Ray Roa, Ben Montgomery, Mitch Perry. Take us out, John. Have a nice weekend, everybody. Take care.